to your chairs. Uh, it, we're going to open our Bibles to read the Word of God together. If you need one, throw your hand in the air. We've got free ones you can borrow or take for the day. Uh, and otherwise, uh, open them to James chapter 5. Uh, and Candace is going to read Scripture for us. Riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned the murdered and the righteous person. He does not resist. Let's pray. Father, as we gather again to worship you and uh, to, to sing your praises, to celebrate your word, to hear it proclaimed, pray to you as you've taught us to pray. We are grateful again to be called as one body, to be called with one confession of faith, to be called as one even as you are one with your Son. God, I pray for some churches that I had an opportunity to meet with this week. I, I pray, God, for Gateway Church, Old Brooklyn, and Pastor Tony there. I ask, God, that as they gather this morning, that you would move uh, mightily in their midst by the word of God, that the word would shape and change hearts this morning, that it would do its work as the two-edged sword that pierces the division of soul and spirit. God, I pray for Gateway Church West, who is uh, actively reaching and attempting to reach uh, immigrants and uh, refugees, and we pray that that ministry would be fruitful, that your good news would spread to the world through what they are doing there. May Pastor John preach your word faithfully this morning. I pray for Mike Broom at and Faith Works Community Church. God, I thank you for the revival that they had there this week. We pray for that community on the, the east side that has been so inundated with violence over the last year, two years. We pray for peace this morning. We pray that hearts would be surrendered to your son, Jesus Christ, and so could take up arms no more. We pray that you would give Mike confidence to fear nothing there as he proclaims boldly the word of truth. God, now may we be good hearers of the word, and may I proclaim it faithfully as we dig into James chapter 5. We pray for your blessing in all these things. 
Amen. So we got a, a challenging uh, passage this morning, and I, I prayed for a, a few churches by name because I did have the opportunity to um, spend some time with some churches in different neighborhoods uh, this week. Um, I'm, I'm helping out with our larger local network of, of churches here, Cleveland Hope, and, and helping them to uh, with their church plants and young churches to work with some missions teams that are going to come up this summer to help them, and I'm, I'm helping to you make all those relationships, happy relationships, and so uh, we got to go around and tour some, some churches, and that was a lot of fun. It was, a lot of, it was exciting to see what God is up to in the city, and, and maybe to start dreaming about how we here at, at downtown can, can bless some of those churches and bless some of those neighborhoods. I don't know if they make these things that custom fit, and these things always falling off my head. Um, one of these days, I'll work on it. Um, but but it's, it, it was fun, and it's fun to dream a little bit, and it's fun to hear these churches' dreams, uh, not just the pastors, but, but some of the members and attenders there and, and, and the things that are going on in their lives, and, and to hear these, these stories of baptism and these stories of conversions and, um, and, and stories of being hurt and broken and, and smiling and laughing through that, the difficulties of, of, of city ministry. Um, but there is a, uh, it, it was interesting, I spent most of the day on Friday on, on the west side at, at, at various churches, and then I spent the, uh, the evening and then Saturday morning on the east side. And boy is, there a, boy, is there a disparity of income in Cleveland between the west side and the east side, isn't there? And we could, we could talk about all the historical reasons for that, but... It is, it is uh, a, a, a huge difference. And it makes me realize that even though we live in one of the richest times in history, in one of the richest nations in history, we don't have this economics thing all figured out yet. There are, there are gross inequalities, and they're not all stemming from how much hard work you do or, or how much pulling yourself up by your bootstraps you do. Um, they're, they're not all dictated by uh, whether you went to college or not. There, there are so many myriad factors in play, and, and some of them are just, and some of them we just have to call them what they are. They're, they're unjust. And, and so we, we look at a passage like James chapter 5, and... It is, it is a harsh passage. It is a difficult passage. And it's a difficult passage because it is so simple. There's really not much to it. The point is, is fairly on the surface. But I think we live... In, in such, I mean, why is that river, why is downtown such a divided, dividing line in Cleveland that there is so much more concentrated poverty on the east side than the west side? And, and why is it that we have communities that are distinctively poor in the United States and, and we have communities that are distinctively rich? Why don't these live side by side? I know that these have answers. I'm not, I'm not trying to suggest that they don't, and I'm not trying to suggest these things are easy. But what I am saying is that I think that uh, the segregation of these communities makes it easy 
for us to not think about these issues until we're forced to. And I think when I at least, may, and maybe you're different than me, and, and good for you if, if you are, but I read passages like James 5, and I move on. I move on. I, I, you know, it, it, it doesn't, I don't allow it to sink in. I don't allow it to hit me. Uh, tell me something that's where I'm at, James. And so I'm kind of forced to stop and slow down here this morning and look at these, these six verses and ask, what do they have to say to us? And here's, here's James' message. It's, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Judgment is looming on those who abuse their wealth. Judgment is looming on those who abuse their wealth. And James points to four different abuses of wealth. You might say he points to four reasons why this judgment is coming, but they are four distinct abuses of wealth. And I think that we need to take a look at them and see how they might play in our society today. We need to see how this passage does impact me, how it impacts us, um, because it's an odd passage. Um, and let's, let me explain what I mean by it being an odd passage by looking at verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. We've already talked about the fact that, that James is writing to a group of Jewish Christians in the diaspora. He, he's writing to people who are uh, followers of Jesus Christ. He's not writing to non-Christians. And so now all of a sudden, what, what is going on here that he makes the statement directly toward the rich and tells them that miseries are coming upon you? Because these guys, if, if miseries are coming upon them and judgment is coming upon them, it doesn't sound like he's talking to Christians. And so we need to wrestle with that as well. First, I want to make clear that this is a, a passage of judgment. James has often, he, he's used sort of a, the, the role of a, a teacher. He, he's almost used the language of, a, of an older brother or a friend. You know, come here, let's, let's talk about this. He's used the, the language of the wisdom writers, of the, the uh, Psalms and the, and the Proverbs. But here he is distinctively using the language of the Old Testament prophets. In fact, this, this word uh, to howl is a verb that's only used in the Old Testament in the prophets talking about impending judgment. And we don't like to talk about things like that. But here it is. Here's James writing the New Testament to Christians, and he's using the language of the prophets who pronounced doom. And he's pronouncing it on the rich. And we've talked briefly about the rich before. Um, the rich in, in Scripture isn't always those who just have a lot of money. That's part of it, but they fit a niche where because of their resources, it is much more easy for them to ignore their need and absolute dependence on Jesus Christ. In other words, their riches act like a, a blinder on them and prevent them from seeing their needs clearly. So Jesus said, you know, it's easier for uh, a camel to go into the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Why? Because their riches prevent them from seeing their need. They're able to paper over their need. They're able to provide their own comforts in this life and their own joys in this life in a way that the poor don't have access to. Thankfully, Jesus said that what's impossible with man is possible with God. And so the rich are not out of the equation for salvation because salvation is an act of God's mighty, miraculous hand. But we do need to separate this, this idea. We, we don't want to go so far as to think that the rich means anybody with money. However, don't think that just because when Scripture talks about the rich, they're often talking about the people who are, whose riches blind them, that you're off the hook necessarily either. Because the reality is, that the rich are not some other category. As we mentioned, uh, uh, was it last, uh, two weeks ago, before Easter, the rich are us. The vast majority of people in this room would have been categorized as rich in first century Palestine. The, the difference between the haves and the have-nots was extreme in, in first century Palestine. Uh, there was a few, you know, kings and, 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 and their emperors and governors and, and things like that, uh, and, and some landowners and merchants were the haves. And most everybody else, the vast majority of the population fell into the everybody else category. The kind of people that we talked about a couple, uh, two weeks ago, really couldn't have planned for the future because you live day by day by day by day. And so you didn't make plans for the future. So James talked about those who would make plans for the future as if they could know what the future would bring. That was something that would have been limited only to uh, the most well-off of society because most of the population then lived day by day. Uh, a subsistence-style life. Most of us in this room don't live day by day. We get paychecks for two weeks at a time, or a month at a time, or a week at a time. Uh, we have money left over after we pay uh, you know, our, our food, shelter, clothing, transportation. There's, there's a little bit of money left over so we can kind of make a plan about tomorrow and have a decent likelihood of it coming through. And so we need to be honest that at least in terms of material accumulation, not necessarily the spiritual category, but the material accumulation category, we fit most of us here, under the rubric of the rich that James is looking at. We have a steady stream of income. We have resources that we can hold on to, that if necessary, we could exchange for money. We have the flexibility and, and stability to plan for our futures. We're rich. And we're rich even today in a way that much of the world couldn't dream of. Even many that we would put in the category of the poor in 21st century America would be rich by first century Palestinian standards. So let's not be so quick to dismiss what James has to say. Because if the rich are those whose ease and comfort in this world prevent them from rightly seeing their need for God, and if we are rich, we need to do an honest 
appraisal of our own lives to make sure that our eyes aren't likewise blinded. James talks about four abuses that bring on this judgment. Abuse number one is in verses two through three. It's the unnecessary stockpiling of wealth. He says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. What's he talking about here? Um, James doesn't have much in the way of argumentation. It's just a bunch of terse statements that, that kind of poke us if we let them. And uh, they, they all sort of point to a general decay of these rich people's wealth. He writes about rottenness. He writes about being moth-eaten. He writes about corrosion, which are things that happen to our possessions if they're not used. If we keep food too long, it rots. If we extend that metaphor a little bit, what James is saying is that when we hold on to things, they go bad. James talks about garments that have been consumed by moths. I always thought this imagery of moths was kind of an odd one. Because in our day, we don't see moths consuming our valuables. So when Jesus talks about laying up your treasure in heaven where uh, the moth does not destroy, I always thought it was an odd metaphor. In, In the world today, there are plenty of ways to hold wealth, right? Uh, You can hold property, uh, various different investment vehicles, 401ks, IRAs, uh, 501bs, 503bs, you know, collectibles, uh, business assets, furniture. We have lots of ways that you can hold wealth in in our society. But in the ancient world, there were three primary ways that you held wealth. Uh, Agricultural goods, so so land and the stuff that you could produce off the land. Um, Valuable metals, precious metals, gold and silver, and clothing. We don't think of clothing as a, as a wealth vehicle, but in the ancient world, it very much was. Um, you probably recall that when Jesus was crucified, the soldiers cast lots to see who would receive his clothing. It was, it was too valuable to rip up because it, it was a... a seamless garment. Jesus' garment was a seamless garment. If it had seams in it, they could have ripped it along the seams and everyone could have gotten a piece of cloth, but it was a seamless garment that was extra worthwhile. They didn't want to rip it up, so they cast lots for it. They were just going to reuse Jesus' underwear because it was valuable. You didn't have you know, a closet full of clothes, let alone, I mean, we have, we have clothes in our closet that We've outgrown that we're hoping that we grow back into. And we, we have clothes. Some of us, a few of us, are fortunate enough to have clothes that we're just hanging on to us in case, you know, at Christmas we gain a few extra pounds again. You know, not so in the ancient world, right? Not so. You, you might have one or two outfits. Clothing was an incredibly precious commodity. Now, 
it, some of you may remember sticking mothballs in, inside clothes to prevent the moths from, like I seem to remember my grandmother having that, and I seem to vaguely remember once when I was a kid, a moth ate a hole into my shirt, like one time. It was weird. I remember thinking that was weird. It doesn't, it doesn't happen very much, right? Because you know what? Moths, like most insects, they scatter when, when things are moving around them. If you're putting on clothes, taking them off, wearing them, they don't tend to collect moths. So moths eat the garments that are sitting around doing nothing, not being used. These people have so much value tied up in their clothes, so much clothing that they don't use that clothing, that it literally gets destroyed from disuse. And so that the moth-eaten nature of their clothing is uh, an indictment of how much they have. Does that make sense? They've got so much they can't use it, and so it gets destroyed. And apparently this very valuable commodity being destroyed is of no consequence to them. The same thing with their gold and silver. Uh, James says that it's corroded. Now, gold doesn't corrode, and silver only corrodes with great difficulty, but he's, he's speaking a bit metaphorically here. Um, the picture is, is clear enough that even these most precious metals, when left to the side, stockpiled up in a safe or, or, or wherever they've got it, it slowly just goes to waste and becomes worthless. So simply put, the rich here have built up riches that they don't need and don't use. They have more clothes that they can wear. They have final financial reserves for a rainy day that will never come. It's a hoarding of riches. And their riches have rotted because of their excess you say, well, I don't have so much excess that it's rotted. Yeah, but we live in a culture that has devised ways of preventing the, the destruction of our accumulated wealth, right? That, that we have entire industries devoted to how do you protect your accumulated wealth so that it doesn't deteriorate and, and, and lose market value and get destroyed. We have financial planners that we hire to do exactly that for us to make sure that we have the most left at the end of our lives. And I'm not saying that any of that is wrong, but just sit, think, think through the number of things that we do in our culture, in our society, to protect these uh, uh, bad things from ever happening to us. So they've hoarded their wealth. The second abuse they have is they have hurt the poor with their practices. Uh, verse 4, James says, Behold, the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back by hand, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And again, the thrust of these verses seems pretty clear. James complains that the rich are withholding the wages of poor workers. Most translations suggest that it was out of a fraud, uh, maybe deception, um, but the word might just mean holding back with, without any notion of fraud. But, but that would be bad enough because they didn't have banks like we had today. They don't have credit like we have today. And it wasn't so, I mean, it's not so easily accessible. Uh, it, it's amazing, comparatively speaking, how easy it is to get credit in our society. 
So much so that we just take for granted the, the things that happen in our world that are based on credit. The fact that we get a paycheck every two weeks. You know, the, the fact that a, a, a business can get a loan and, and can go into debt and can continue to pay its employees even though it's not making any money right now. But they keep going. They keep paying their employees. They keep stocking their shelves even when they're losing money. You know, so that it's a big deal when a company has to start laying off employees. But that would have been an everyday occurrence in the first century when you're paid out of that day's profits. You're paid at the end of the day for the work you did that day. There was no, there was no bank. We're going to write you a check and then you can take that down to the bank at your leisure and, and exchange that check for money. No, you... So Jesus had the, the parable of the, the, the workers, and, and you kind of get a sense of the idea, you know, that the, the, the farm, uh, the, the landowner hired some workers at one point in the day, and then he hired some workers another point in the day, another point in the day. And they were all mad at the end of the day that they received that same amount of wages from the, uh, from the farmer, uh, because they said, well, I worked more, I worked less. But, but you get a sense of the culture. The workers, at the end of the day, came and collected their wages for that day. And so that was uh, that just the way things operated. And so if you withheld the wages of a worker, you were potentially causing catastrophic uh, circumstances in, the, in their life, in the life of their families. They uh, used that money they made that day to survive for the next 24 hours. Think about that. We, we get a paycheck every two weeks, and, and some of us live paycheck to paycheck, or at least we feel like we live paycheck to paycheck, and we take the money for those two weeks, and that, that gets us through two weeks. Can you imagine, because most of us have never been here, maybe a few of us have, where the money you make today is all you have to get through till tomorrow, and then tomorrow it starts over again. So if you've got two weeks at a time or a month at a time or bi-monthly at a time, you've got a little bit more flexibility to, to spread out the, the funds, you know, to make them last, to, you know, go a little light here, a little heavy here. But if you're getting enough today to last you until that time tomorrow, that's rough. And then you, you get sick or, or you get injured and you, you can't work and there's no disability, there's no Social Security. So imagine that's compounded by your boss saying, I'm not, I don't have money for you today, but I'm going to pay you tomorrow. I don't have money for you tomorrow, but I'll pay, pay you for the week next week. Meanwhile, again, those who would have had land in that society and culture, they were the rich. So they are continuing to be enriched by your labor, but they are not protecting you. They're not caring for you. So this would have been absolutely devastating. This, uh, in a very small way, happened to me once. I was, in a former life, when I was selling cars, that was a long, awful year. Nonetheless, uh, I was involved in more car deals than any one of you will ever be involved in your lives. So I know all their games. Don't buy a car without talking to me first. Um, <clears throat> but I was pulling up a pickup truck into the, the car wash, and I just, I took the turn a little too tight. It was a narrow thing. And, and, the, and the bed hit the wall of the dealership. 
and, and got a huge dent in it, and it had to be fixed. And you would think they just like, you know, most businesses you work at, um, they have insurance or stuff like that. You, you knock something off the shelf and you break it, like you know, there's insurance. That, they, don't, they don't work that way at the, most of the dealerships. Like, so that was kind of all come out of my paycheck. And, uh, and, and, it all, and, you know, and I didn't know when it was coming because they waited until the whole thing was fixed. And then uh, my boss was like, okay, here, you know, here's the $1,000 we tell you. But now, mind you, I was barely making $1,000 at the time. And I would take $1,000 of their paycheck. I'm like, man, like, I knew you were going to do that at some point. But you gave me no warning. And, like, couldn't you have, like, taken maybe half out? This one, like half out the next month, like, you know, work with me a little bit. That's like my whole paycheck. And he's like, oh, yeah, I didn't think about that. Sorry about that. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, you didn't think about that. That's, that's a problem. Can we just, can we rethink that? No. You know, and, and that was a really, really bad month for my family. No. And that's small potatoes compared uh, to this. We do this today. Um, I, I could point to restaurants that I know of or have known to have uh, that pay their employees under the table. They think that's a, a great practice, but what happens? They don't receive any Social Security benefits from that. Uh, they don't oftentimes make the requisite amount. Some of these businesses are doing that because they're really only paying $5 an hour or $6 an hour than what the law requires. Or they're keeping bad records so that when a, you know, waiters and waitresses, they make a lower minimum wage, but that's because they're supposed to get tips up to that. If they don't get tips up to that, they're supposed to kick in with the regular minimum wage. Well, a lot of restaurants don't do that because they don't keep those kind of records and they just don't care. We take advantage of immigrants using their more precarious state status to increase our profits. I could, I could point to businesses that intentionally have used immigrants who are not allowed to be working. Maybe they're on a student visa and pay them way below what they should be for way more hours than they should be because they can get away with it. This is in Cleveland. I could point to these places. In 2014, a report from NBC News documented uh, a Ghanaian cocoa farmer who was particularly successful, making it into what would be the uh, lower middle class of Ghanaian society. His wage, effectively $3 a day. That's middle class by percentages alone, not by any real accumulation of wealth. And yet there are entire industries, particularly cocoa and, and coffee and, and that exist on that. And, and we reap the benefits of that here, don't we? Because we buy an 89-cent chocolate bar, not a, a $1.50 chocolate bar. And I'm not saying that we, we, we write all these wrongs, but do we realize that we who are effectively wealthy by the world standards are helping to maintain the deprivation of people's wages? So I don't know that we are all entirely innocent. Abuse number three in, in verse five. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have 
fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The first sentence is pretty obvious, right? Uh, You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. So they have used their wealth. This is the abuse. They have used their wealth for selfish comfort and ease. The second sentence is a little bit trickier. Um, it's, it's as if their excess is like that, you know, when, when they're trying to fatten the animal up for slaughter, you know, and they just feed them more and more and more and more and more to try and get them as big and as heavy and make as much money off the amount of meat and fat on those bones uh, before, they, before they kill it. And James is saying that, that the way they are using their stuff is a lot like the way a farmer just keeps feeding the pig and feeding the cow until it's ready to, to take an axe to its neck. And in, in the Old Testament, judgment is often portrayed as a slaughter. And, and so James's picture here is almost as if the rich are preparing themselves for God's judgment. In the same way that that a pig willingly eats everything that's put before it, not knowing that the more it eats, the closer it's getting to its death. If the pig had brains, if the pig was aware of the operation, the pig would stop eating, right? Hey, as long as I stay below 120, I'm safe, right? You know, but the pig's stupid. The pig is ignorant of the realities around it. And James said that is exactly what the rich are doing to themselves. It fits the, the pattern of, of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, uh, and, and there's, a, there's a lot there. There's several sermons in Romans chapter 1. But there's this, this idea that when... Um, it says that for although they knew God and did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to, become, to be wise, they became fool and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, and, and so forth and so on. And over and over in Romans 1, you have God giving them up to it's, it's almost like they, they've chosen their poison. They've chosen to reject God. They want to follow this. And God just says, go at it. Feast. And fatten yourself for the day of slaughter. If that's what you choose, you reject me and you want those things, then I give you over to them. Satisfy yourself on them. But judgment is coming. The Sun published a, a piece, uh, the British publication piece, published a piece on Friday on, on Kim Jong-un's island paradise. According to Dennis Rodman, who is apparently the authoritative source, <laughs> as one of the very few Americans to ever been there, he says, it's like going to Hawaii or Ibiza, but it, he's the only one that lives there. He's got 50 to 60 people around him all the time, just normal people drinking cocktails and laughing the whole time. If you drink a bottle of tequila, it's the best tequila, everything you want. He has the best. The article continues to describe the luxuries available to him and his chosen guests from the finest imported foods, the resort-style recreation, all while the vast majority of his citizens are living in dire poverty and starving. Just fill the trough and keep feeding on it. 
And yet, how much better are we? And, and I asked that, and that it's a question you can really only ask yourself. Are you using your wealth for your selfish comfort and ease? I'll circle back to that. The final abuse that James mentions. In verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Condemned and murdered, murdered um, quite possibly through the withholding of wages. Because it literally could be, in their culture, that withholding a person's wages meant they were starving. Starvation leads to death on its own. It leads to, to greater pensions for sickness and disease that, that can cripple a person and, and, and bring about their ruin and their death. It could be, however, maybe James means it very literally. That's entirely possible. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we know that the rich of this world have often uh, so, little, so little care or concern for those around them except as obstacles in their own pursuit of greater material well-being. And, and we've seen it time and time again. And, uh, you know, I, I bring these things up not, not to be political at all, but we do see uh, corporations and, and individuals who create disastrous circumstances uh, I, I think of the, the massive gulf spill we had a few years ago. Uh, the lack of, of safety precautions and the lack of um, rigorous controls and testing and procedures. All those things would have cost them money. All those things would have, helped, would have cut into profits. What other reason would there be, though, to not do them? And those things devastate. Who did, who did they devastate? They didn't devastate people at the, the top of the chain, they, they devastated people like fishermen, right? People whose, whose living was based on what, what came in that week, what came in that month from the ocean. And, and so it very well could be that James means it a little bit more literally, that they are, have a willingness to just bowl over the poor in their pursuit of, of gain and profit. So why is James writing all this to us? And I think the answer is, is twofold. It's an encouragement, and it's a warning. It doesn't sound much like an encouragement. But I do think that James's audience is predominantly poor, because class would have normally been poor, that the society was normally poor, and we know that most early Christians were poor. Um, we, he's got a few rich people in the congregations that he's writing to. We know that from other passages, like the one we looked at two weeks ago, but by and large, they're poor. They may very well be some of those individuals who've had their wages withheld, who've struggled and, and suffered while they see other members of their society have tremendous excess, 
more than they can use, so much so that they, they're letting it go to waste, and yet they don't have anything to spare for a neighbor. And the encouragement here is that God knows. God is aware of it, and he's not indifferent to it. And there is judgment coming. See, see, judgment, we oftentimes paint it as a negative, we paint it as a bad. But it, there's a positive side to judgment too, and we, we do understand it, we don't like to talk about it, but when we see somebody commit a, a heinous crime, there's, there's a part of us that rejoices when they're caught, when they are punished, or some of us perversely rejoice when something really even more awful happens to that person. I, I don't think that the way that we handle that is always good, but I think that our sense to cry out for justice is good. Does that make sense? Um, I, for, we had this, this shooter uh, last week um, recorded a murder on, and then uploaded it to, to Facebook. And, and there were some people that were, were giddy about the fact that he killed himself and, and he got caught. And that's, that's perverse. Okay, that's, that's perverted. Um, because we believe that life is created in God's image. And it's sacred. And it's a tragedy when life is destroyed, regardless of the reasons why it's destroyed. But that sense that it's put away, that it's done with, that it won't happen again, that he won't kill again, that, I think, is born out of a sense of justice in our hearts because we're creating God's image. Does that make sense? There's, so there's a goodness in that desire to see resolution. There's a goodness in the desire to see justice done. There's a little bit of a perversity, though, when we, when we rejoice at, at, at evil. And it's a fine line sometimes. And I think we need to, we need to feel both. I'm getting a little off topic. Um, but there's an encouragement in knowing. Sometimes in life, you know, we just need to know that someone's going to take care of it. We need to know that someone's got a handle on it. And, and it's, it's not being ignored. You know, I, I've had people come up to me in the, in the church before and say, you know, did you, did you see this? Did you, did you hear about this? What, what, what are we going to do about that? What, is anybody doing anything about that? That was bad what, what she said, or that's, that was bad what he did. And like, you know, calm down. I saw it. I know it. The other elders are aware of it. We're working through it. Oh, okay. You know, it's just sometimes you need to know that some things are, are being handled. And so there's encouragement in that, that God sees those injustices happening. He's aware of those injustices, and he is working to take care of them. And we can trust him better than any human authority. But there is a warning. Because even though I think James is talking about non-Christians that these Christians are interacting, because the, the rich in this sense 
would be people who don't recognize their need for God. And someone who doesn't recognize their need for God is not a Christian. And so, he's saying this first and foremost as an encouragement to these Christians who are probably encountering this type of the rich. However, there's still a very real warning there for them to check themselves. Maybe they have positioned themselves and they see themselves as followers of Jesus Christ, but maybe their actions and the way they live their lives are betraying that claim. See, the, the riches of this world, including the riches that we individually have, they are treasured up not for our own glory, but for the glory of Jesus Christ. As everything in this world is, is given for the glory of Jesus Christ. And we can use those things to that end, or we cannot. And if we don't, it's an abuse of those things. And so, money is, as like Martin Luther said, the first conversion is the conversion of the heart. The second is the, the conversion of the pocketbook. And I think what he was trying to say is that there's a sense in which it is really easy to get somebody to say, I love Jesus, and I want to follow Jesus. It's a really difficult thing for our lives to change in response to that. But that's where conversion becomes real. And because we tend to have a, a greedy hoarding nature, one of the ways you, sort of the, one of the first evidences, I think, that somebody uh, really understands that Jesus is Lord, and that this world is temporary, and that we are preparing for an eternity, is that we hold the things of this world very lightly. Our posture, in other words, stops being this and starts being this. And whatever God places there is there. It's, it's there for, for his use. It's, it's there for your use. It's, it's available. And, and we still have a tendency to do this with our, our things and our, our stuff and our dreams and our visions. But, but our material resources are one that we really like to do this with. And so, do we live with a, a sort of generous spirit, uh, a, a spirit that, you know, in, in the book of Acts, when they were selling their possessions and sharing things in common with one another, it, it didn't mean that they were putting things into a group pile and saying, hey, anyone take what they want, but it was an attitude of, if you have a need and I have a provision, then my provision is for your need, right? I mean, it's... It's an openness. It's a, it's a willingness to make what I have available for the glory of God. Do we live that way? Money's always dangerous to talk about in church. But how available are your resources personally for your next door neighbor, for your colleague? or for the person sitting next to you or in front of you or behind you in the chairs this morning, more importantly, your fellow Christian, your fellow family member in Christ. How available are your resources for them? Is your, is your sofa available to them for, for a night of rest or the spare bedroom? Is, um, 
Is your car available to them when it breaks down and they have a job interview? Is your, is your paycheck available to them if they lose their job? You know, what, what do your, your giving habits say about how you are holding your wealth? Do you give generously? The scriptures uh, teach us to give generously to Christ's work. Do you exhibit a, a giving generously? And, and what does that mean? What is your, what is that? It's not a, a, a sermon on giving. I'm not going to give a whole lot of pointers on that, but what is your, what is your metric? Is your metric, well, my un, non-Christian friends don't give any money to their church, and I give some, so see, I'm, I'm one up on them. No, but what, in your heart of hearts, what's your attitude? Are you holding on to your things? Or are you willing for them to go away? You're not, you're not throwing them around, but you're willing to let them be taken to be received, to be given, as need arises. You know, there's a difference. So, you know, the world sometimes wants to split up. Well, either we're, we're capitalist pigs and we go like this, or, you know, we're, 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 we're socialists and we just we, we throw it all away and everybody... But no, but that's not... Neither one of those is really a Christian posture. The Christian posture is what God puts in my hands, God has put in... My hands for his good, and, and what's in my hands can leave freely for his good. That's more of a Christian posture. And could it be that if we are living our lives like this, maybe, maybe this warning is for us. Maybe we do not know Christ the way we think we know Christ. Let's pray. Father, I confess that I too often hold the good things that you have given me, and that is everything in my life is a good gift from you. And I hold those things, the ones that I like at least, I hold them very tightly to my chest far too often. Forgive me for that, God. And teach me more and more to open my hands, to receive and to give out as needs arise and as as circumstances come up. God, make us a people at Gateway Downtown who live with open arms and open hands that we might freely receive and so freely give of the good gifts that you give to us. And I I pray, God, for those who are here that maybe sense that they are hoarding, that you would open up their hands and if, if necessary, God, break through and open their hearts that they might receive the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the Jesus who, who took even his very life and didn't hold it, but let go of it for the sake of us and our sins, that they might receive that good gift, that they might become givers after his image. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.